Our guest today is second-generation astronaut Richard Garriott. He is considered to be one of the fathers of space tourism, the father of virtual role-play, and, and I, I believe that's with computer games. And I happen to know that he's also the father of the youngest person ever to stand on the North Pole. I'm Dustin Planholt, founder and CEO of Life's Tough Media. This season of Life's Tough, but Explorers Are Tougher, is made possible through the generous support of Ripple. We hope you enjoy the series. This is Life's Tough, but Explorers are Tougher. I'm your host, Richard Weiss. If you're new to Life's Tough, I'd like to welcome you and tell you a little about myself and the show. First of all, I love the outdoors. I always have and I always will. And I've also been surrounded by explorers my entire life. My father, Richard Weiss Sr., was the first man to solo the Pacific Ocean in an airplane. The New York Times called him the Lone Eagle of the Pacific. Some of my fondest memories were standing out on our lawn underneath the stars with my father telling me how explorers use the stars to navigate. I guess we talked about a few other things as well. And speaking of talking, I host a television show called Born to Explore. It's on PBS stations around the country, so please check it out. And finally, I've been president of the world-famous Explorers Club, just about every great explorer of the 20th and 21st century has been a member, including Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, Jane Goodall, Theodore Roosevelt. Some people say it's like Harry Potter's Hogwarts, only for adults. I've heard stories that would make the hair on the back of your neck stand up. You see, explorers are the type of people who walk in space, go to the bottom of the ocean, and stand on the highest summits. Scratch the surface of any explorer and you'll find they're all storytellers. This show is about their tales. Our guest today is second-generation astronaut Richard Garriott. He is considered to be one of the fathers of space tourism, the father of virtual role-play, and, and I, I believe that's with computer games. And I happen to know that he's also the father of the youngest person ever to stand on the North Pole. Welcome to Life's Tough, Richard Garriott. Father's Day must be a tremendously busy day for you. <laughs> well, you know, uh, uh, you know, of course, as you well know, that any, anything that is happening within your own family, everybody thinks is quite normal. So, uh, you know, I, I don't think anybody uh, uh, thinks anybody else in this family is particularly special. <laughs> well, in fact, I, I think your uh, mother, Helen Garriott, um, used to call you Unique Richard. Yeah. What What is unique Richard? Uh, well, that was because uh, you know it's interesting. You know, my my parents uh, were very uh, unlike each other, shall we say. Uh, my father, uh, very scientific, uh, NASA astronaut, uh, simple, logical, perfect, very Spock-like. And my mother was exactly the opposite. She was an artist. Uh, she uh, was into every kind of art: pottery, silversmithing, you know, etchings, everything that she, we we did, uh, and very much of a naturalist as well. And, and I just ate it all up from, from both of them. So, you know, while, while my, my three siblings sort of all kind of followed in one or the other path, I was the person who just uh, consumed it all, the, all the art and all the science. 
Well, you know, it's interesting you make a, a Star Trek um, Spock analogy because as you realize, Spock was half Klingon and half human. Uh, but speaking of Star Trek, you've recently been in the news for being a smuggler, a smuggler of an unusual item into space. So care to elaborate on that one? <laughs> yes, 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 indeed. Well, uh, uh, the, the, the rumor is true, uh, but, but some of the details are, you could use a little cleaning up perhaps, uh, which is that you know, in 2008, just before my space flight, uh, tragically, James Doohan, the actor that played Scotty on Star Trek, had passed away. And uh, per his final wishes, uh, his family had been trying to get his ashes sent into space uh, on some of these commercial sounding rockets where they'll do that. They'll take a couple of grams and launch them into space along with other uh, payloads into just a, uh, a, a sounding rocket uh, suborbital flight. Uh, but twice in a row, they brought out the press and they'd had been here for the sounding rocket launch and twice in a row it had failed to make it into space. And so they were actually quite sad and weren't up to trying a third time and they were basically giving up on it when a mutual friend called me on the phone and said, Richard, you know, you ought to solve this for them. And, uh, and I said, well, that's a great idea, except I'm already in quarantine in Baikonur and I'm about to launch like in 72 hours. <laughs> and so there's just no way we could pull this off. And uh, I said, but you know, if you, can, if you can get a vial to me here in Baikonur in, you know, 24 hours, uh, then, then maybe we'll all try something. Uh, but sure enough, they actually got it to me. We created these uh, uh, basically little business card size uh, uh, samples uh, with a little dust of uh, James Doohan on them. I took them with me to the space station. Uh, one, I returned to his son, Chris Doohan. A second one, I put be in the airlock, so, uh, between the airlocks, so that when we separated prior to reentry, that card would go out on a spacewalk before reentering the Earth's atmosphere a little while later. Uh, and the third one I left on board the space station. So, uh, uh, so yes, that that is is all true. That uh, I had the great honor of shepherding James Duhan uh, up into space. So, you know, it, it seems like when you talk about things that are inherited or in the genes, I believe your father also smuggled something into space, or at least pulled a prank in space on his first flight in what was that, 1973? Did that or in '83? It was 73. No, you're right. The second flight was 83, the shuttle flight. But uh, on his first flight, no, he did. In fact, I actually think I have it right here in the cabinet above me. He took a cassette tape uh, with a recording of my mother's voice answering, uh, or you know, one half, you might say, of a script that one person in mission control knew the other half of the script. <laughs> and uh, my father had guessed that at some point in time during his two-month Skylab flight, uh, that they would see either uh, wildfires in California or a hurricane in the Gulf. And so the cassette had two sides since so there was a recording for each of these natural events, one on one side, one on the other. And, uh, uh, and, the, uh, and, and, and when my dad did see, a, uh, I think it was a hurricane in the Gulf, uh, he told the Capcom down in Mission Control, hey, Bob, I've got something special for you on the next pass. And Bob knew that meant 90 minutes later when they flew over the same radio communications tower, that my dad could press play on the tape and Bob would know what to say. And it made it appear that my mother was actually had stowed away on board Skylab. <laughs> and no one, in, no one in mission control knew how it happened. In fact, they didn't know for 15 years how it had happened. They, they had assumed that somehow somebody was bouncing radio signals back and forth for a live conversation, which was not the case. Uh, and uh, so it was a well-kept secret for about you know, 10 or 15 years, kind of like James Doohan was a well-kept secret for 10 or 12 years. 
That, that's a great story. So your father was part of the Apollo Skylab program. I, I think he became an astronaut or named to be an astronaut in 1965. And so as a kid, you remember these things. In 1973, you would have been old enough to remember your father going to space. Take me to that day in 1973. Where are you? Where do you go? What are you watching? What do you look like? And what are you thinking? Yeah, well, 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 I even take it a little bit before the launch day because, you know, even the preparation when my dad was working on experiments, um, you know, he would bring parts of these experiments home to practice with them. And that also meant we would have a chance to sit around and interact with these too. And so there were things that we were playing with that only years later on reflection, did you realize how amazing this was to have this level of technology as a basically a toy in our house so early. Like one was something that was scientifically called a photomultiplier tube, this basic aluminum housing that had batteries in it uh, that you'd put a camera lens on one side of and an eyepiece from a telescope on the other end, and you would look through it and it would brighten the image that came into this photomultiplier tube, basically night vision. But this was before anybody had ever had night vision. And we would use it to run around and like chase the cat in the garden at night or, you know, <laughs> Polaroid cameras, which quickly became super common. You know, we had one made out of aluminum that was their prototype that was going to be used in space. And so we were taking, you know, prototype Polaroids all the time. And, and now to skip ahead now to launch, you know, the first thing that happened prior to my dad's launch was they launched the actual uh, Skylab itself. And so we went out to the Cape and got to watch a Saturn V launch, which is, uh, you know, the, the noise and thunder and earth shake of that is truly awesome to behold even as a 13 year old, you know, that was also interested in the alligators crawling out of the swamps nearby. Uh, and then when my dad launched on a Saturn 1B, our house uh, was wired with these things called squawk boxes, basically little radios to where anything radioed up or down, we could hear it as a live feed, no, nothing would be filtered. And we had a little black bat phone on the my mom's nightstand uh, that if it was, you know, we had my dad's schedule and there were, times in the schedule where we were pre-approved to basically pick up the phone, press the button, it auto-dialed the Capcom and Mission Control, who would then connect us straight up to Skylab. So even for getting help on homework and things, I could, you know, hey, dad, I'm stuck on this math problem. Please give me a hand. And again, those all just seemed totally normal uh, until I went to college and met all the Sesame Street people, the, you know, the, the baker and the fireman and the police officer that suddenly realized, oh, yeah, that's actually what normal life is like. You know, it's interesting because my father was a, a 747 captain, so it was not unusual for him to, on any given summer day, to say, you feel like coming to Germany with me for the next two, three days, or going to Africa just for three or four days and sitting in the cockpit. So it didn't seem unusual to me. So as a kid, who were your friends and who were your father's friends that were coming into the house? Well, so what's, that, that sort of deepened the... Uh, the mythos, you might say, in the sense of, you know, my right-hand neighbor was Joe Engel, who's another shuttle-era astronaut. My left-hand neighbor was Hoot Gibson, another shuttle-era astronaut. And all of the Gemini and Mercury astronauts lived, you know, statistically half of them were within four blocks of my house. And on the other side of NASA was sort of another enclave. Uh, we were in what's called Nassau Bay and Clear Lake City with the other half of the astronauts. And so everyone in my neighborhood, if they weren't an astronaut, they were working for one of the prime contractors to put people into space. And so I basically grew up just believing space was the manifest destiny of all of us. You know, you didn't have to decide to be an astronaut. You just, when you grow up, you go to space because that's what everybody I knew did. 
Well, I, I think it wasn't unusual for kids of that era. I, I remember men walking on the moon and, you know, I may have thought, wow, wouldn't that be cool to be an astronaut? It seems so out of my realm. I wouldn't even know where to have started. And then, you know, maybe I wanted to play center field for the New York Yankees, but reality comes into place too. So you're a kid, you want to be an astronaut. What reality hit you in the face? Ah, uh, well, so for me, it, I, 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 I remember the day very well, uh, you know, when I was about 13 years old and I was going to the NASA doctor for a, a checkup, which we did, you know, every, you know, six or months or a year. And uh, the, the doctor gave me an eye test and he said, oh, hey, Richard, uh, you know, your eyes sight is getting pretty bad. Uh, looks like we're going to need glasses. You're going to need glasses. And, you know, I hate to be the one to break it for it to you, but you are no longer eligible to be a NASA astronaut. And I was like, I was stunned because before that moment, I had never thought, you know, when I grew up, I'm going to be an astronaut. I just assumed everybody goes. And so here, before even deciding on my career future, I was being kicked out of the club that my dad, my neighbors and all our neighborhood friends all seemed to be a part of, kind of preemptively kicked out. I was horrified. I was angry. I was sad. I mean, I went through all the stages of grief. And, and at the end of that, I then said, look, you know, who is that doctor to be the gatekeeper of space? If, if I can't go by that doctor's rules, I'm going to have to build my own space agency. And, and of course, at the age of 13, you don't really do much about that. But I mean, but that was, but that really was my thought. I mean, I really did at that very young age, I knew that I wasn't going to be able to do the NASA track. And so I never thought about that track again. Um, and, and only very recently, like, like during, after my flight, would that, have, that rule get changed. Uh, but, but fortunately, within a year or two of that moment is when I stumbled into computer games. And I ran into this computer back here, this Apple II computer that's behind me that I became engrossed with began to be one of the very first people ever to make video games. And um, with that came uh, you know, a windfall of, of significant money. In fact, the first published game I made that took me just a few weeks of after school time, my royalties from that first game was three times my father's uh, NASA astronaut salary. And, and so immediately, not only had I found a career, but I found something that was generating enough money that I could begin to put money towards this, this, this statement that I had made at the age of 13, which is I'm gonna build my own space agency. And so I have literally through my entire life, the majority of the investing I've done personally has been to help open up uh, frontiers for exploration and more specifically uh, for space exploration. But I mean, there's a bit of a jump between you know, $150,000, even in 2021, is a huge amount for a kid in high school, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's no, no disputing in the 19, I guess, 70s, 70s. When, when you did that. That's a lot, a lot of money. So you continue with your uh, gaming career, and then you stumble onto or figure out something called virtual role play. Well, that even my first even my first games were role playing games. So the literally on that machine back there behind me, that's the, the actual machine I used to make my early games on. It still still runs them, uh, and uh, so uh, you know I was inspired you know outside of space. You know games like Dungeons and Dragons, books like Lord of the Rings, were what you know when I found this machine, I immediately began to write role playing games on it, and and I wrote many. 
Um, even before I could get one published, I used to call them D&D 1, D&D 2 after Dungeons and Dragons, of course. And I made 28 of them that were unpublished. Then the first one that I made that was published. Then for a 20-year career, I wrote a series of games called Ultima, which is the ones that most people remember. That's where the word avatar came from. That's now very popular in gaming. That's where massively multiplayer games came from. MMOs comes from my games, Ultima Online in particular. Uh, and there's a lot more of the uh, terminology uh, and standards of the video gaming industry that, that I had by being in early and you know, working hard at it and having some reasonable success. I got to, to lay out a lot of the foundation of the, especially the role-playing genre, but frankly, the computer gaming, general, gaming era in general. And so a lot of my games are in the Hall of Fame. I'm personally in, if there's, there's competing industry Hall of Fames. I'm in both of the two that I know of. Uh, and, uh, uh, and so that, that helped, helped fund you know, my passion of uh, exploration. But Richard, I, I once read uh, somewhere that, I think it was your mother, or you, you might've said that, uh, my mother taught me perspective. Now, as a kid in college age, you are now making millions of dollars. And so how did that change your perspective? Because suddenly you're in a whole other realm that isn't virtual, it's real. And how is, how is that changing you? I mean, I, I think it'd be a very hard thing to handle, actually. Oh, I think so, too. Well, I can, I can tell you it did. In fact, uh, you know, one of the uh, uh, you know, confessions I, I have made as, you know, since college uh, you know, was that my college friends who uh, tended to be the people I patterned all the characters in my game after, you know, and it was when I was like, okay, I've got like, I've got uh, 500 non-player characters to make in the game. So I need a new name. I, you know, pick my brother and then my sister. Okay. Well now who, and now my college buddies become characters. And so all my close friends ultimately were characters in my game, but actually during college, I actually had my friends sit me down one time and say, Hey, Richard, you know, we, we need to have a talk because as you are growing in wealth, you are doing things amongst us as a group of friends that we don't appreciate. Uh, and so, and those were habits like if there was a gathering, I might ostentatiously bring a, you know, the super expensive bottle of wine that other people could not have bought. Or there were other patterns of behavior where, you know, I thought that I, you know, in, in my best reflection of myself, I might think of, I am just trying to bring some fun to the group. But in a, the worst possible reflection of it, my friends were going like, hey, wow, you are really starting to show off in a way that, that is making it hard for us to, to feel uh, like equals, equal participants in our friendships. And so uh, I actually feel really thankful that my friends sort of called me out on that so that I could then get another round, a dose of perspective to really kind of do some introspection about, you know, how, what, how am I acting uh, amongst my very important friends who've helped me do all this uh, to, to make sure I, uh, you know, uh, bring them along uh, uh, properly on this journey. I'd have to think that that would be a little isolating because again, speaking of perspective, um, and, and I think when you refer, uh, your mother refers to, or to it, it's, it's ha happens to be drawing our art perspective, but yes. you know, speaking of perspective, it's got to feel a little isolating because there aren't many people like you in your world. And so the, the issues that you're coming up to, you know, who at that point is your person you talk to or your mentor or your rabbi? Any, who is that person at that point? Well, uh, again, in this case, I would actually say my, my, my grounding is, I'll go back to my, to my actual mother. Uh, you know, she was the person who, 
you know, as big as I thought my projects were, like, you know, it might take me, well, for the first 10 games I did were mostly by myself, but the, pretty quickly after that, they became teams of tens and then hundreds. And some games now take thousands of people to make. And, but my biggest games, you know, maybe took two or 300 people to build. But my mother, who was an investor in, in my company, my first company, she took the significant wealth she earned after, out of investing in, in, my, in my work to go to her hometown of Enid, Oklahoma and build a gigantic hands-on art and science uh, facility for which to get the thing built, she hired all the engineers and architects, but then had the entire community come out to help do the, the big parts of the heavy lifting on big parts of the build. And she got 40,000 people in a town of 400,000 to come out. She got 10% of the city to show up over a period of a few, six weekends, I think it was, to come help her build this amazing place. And so I look at that and go like, okay, I had a few hundred people. She's got thousands. And so that she was always doing things at a scale that I found inspirational. So, and, and I was already doing things like I do big haunted houses and stuff to kind of, but again, and those, those are mine. And I think they were pretty cool too, but they were always in homage in some way to these, what seemed like even bigger projects that my mother was taking on. So you, I think your brother or one of your friends once said that Richard spends money better than any other person I know. And so at, that wouldn't have been my brother. Okay. <laughs> maybe, maybe a friend, but when they say you spent, what were you spending your money on? Oh, well, so uh, a ton of what I spent it on is collections and things that inspire me to this day. Like there are a lot of them are here in this building here and uh, uh, here at my townhouse here in New York city. Um, you, know, you know, but, but I, I, I very quickly, as soon as I was writing games that include, you know, if you think about a, a computer game, you know, at its simplest, at its core, the CPU in a computer does a very simple set of things very fast. It can add and subtract and multiply and divide and push things into memory and pull things out of memory, but that's about it. You know, that's it, everything else is sort of a built on top of that. And if you think of mechanical automatons, little things that you wind up and perform a little repetitive task, that's sort of like a gears and levers version of, uh, of an automaton. I mean, of a program, of, of a digital program. And so I became fascinated with this form of art. I've collected thousands of examples of this art form from both history and modern makers. Uh, and then I got into medieval arms and armor. So I collected a bunch of that. And then I got into uh, you know, uh, a antique scientific instruments, particularly Victorian era, where they tended to make these kind of you know, models of, of scientific instruments. And so those, I found them, and a lot of those things I then copied and put in the game either directly as a model or tangentially just sort of thinking about why is that, why is that, why does this artifact inspire me in this way? Uh, later on, I built a collection of, uh, of natural history, starting with the beginning of the universe at the Big Bang and the condensation of, of elements, you know, all through the emergence of planets and asteroids to life and all the epochs of life down through time. And, and every time I see a, an example of, of, a, of a gap, I mean, I, I'm constantly on the search for little gaps in my storytelling for all of these kind of collections upon collections that I build. Yeah, but even with those successes, one would think you may have said to yourself, I've found my calling, I, I'm set for life. Okay, and astro being an astronaut was kind of a cool thought, but man, I I'm living a crazy life, a crazy good life at this point. 
Well, well, yeah, and actually, and actually, Donovan, when you asked me how did you spend the money, I only mentioned the physical uh, gathering. There was a whole other side of this that, that was going on simultaneously, which was uh, experiencing, exploring farther and farther and farther afield. I mean, when I was quite young, and I'm, I'll bet you and most of our explorer friends have similar initial stories. You know, when we would travel, like I remember at a very young age, we were traveling to Hot Springs, Arkansas, I think, and the hotel that we were staying at uh, and had a little diner next door and in the empty lot next to it, there was a cave, literally just sort of in the middle of nowhere. There was a little grotto that was big enough for me to duck walk my way into. And on the inside was a giant room and I didn't have a flashlight. So I went back to the little diner and I took all the packets of, of, of matches that we used to be in the ashtrays, you know, back in those days. Uh, and I took a you know dozen or more packets of matches and I went back in that cave and lit match after match to slowly work my way into as far as I dared into this into this you know urban space. But I found that moment so inspirational, so right on the boundary of of scary and awesome that uh, that I was you know that's sort of, that's sort of the the first little piece of personal exploration I did. But I was hooked, and so I then began to seek out reaching farther and farther into the unknown, always having in my mind's eye, I'm going to get myself into space one of these days. But that was a step-by-step -step process. And, and while space was always something I was trying to find a way to invest in, I was also investing in helping open up the deep seas and polar exploration and other things, frankly, so I could go. Because if there wasn't a company to, let, to, to, to support an expedition there, then there was no way I could go myself. It was the logistics would be too hard in my mind's eye to manage. So I, I've helped fund a lot of these companies that then became expedition uh, fulfillment uh, companies. But Richard, you know, you know, we're talking about space travel. At that point, there's only two games in town, NASA, the Americans, and the Russians. And so NASA's already told you, you can't be an astronaut physically. And you're not a Russian. And at my mind, at least at that point, there probably had been no non-Russians in space or Soviets. So, so how do we get yeah, to launch so, pad? So here's, so here's sort of the patterns. So the first thing that, that began to happen is that in my neighborhood with all these astronauts and engineers, over time, a lot of those people would leave NASA often because they had their own idea about, you know, we should do more in space or something different in space. NASA, the government's too slow. They're not doing it right. I'm gonna spin out and start a private company. And almost all these people who knew my dad, of course, also knew that, hey, by the way, he's got a son who's just striking gold here making video games. If I need investors, I should go talk to Rick, talk to the you know 17 year old Richard. <laughs> and, uh, and so uh, I had a parade of, of astronauts come through like uh, uh, at the age of 19, I, I literally had uh, one of our personal friends, Buzz Aldrin. He came to my dorm at UT, my freshman year at the University of Texas, at the uh, Jester Dormitory that had you know, built-in beds and built-in desks, so you couldn't even move chairs or things around to sit properly. He came up there to pitch me his company called uh, 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 Starcraft Boosters, where he basically was going to take things like the shuttle solid rocket boosters and had put a scissor wing on them so that after it launched, it would twist out a scissor wing and then land like an airplane. Richard, you know how crazy this story is because now we're talking about a man who was on the greatest expedition ever in, in humankind. And he's showing up to a dorm room. 
I don't know if you were Lord British by this time, your your Ultima game. He you were Lord was. British. Yeah, so Buzz Aldrin British. is coming oh, yeah. up to some college kid who calls himself Lord British. You're sitting in your throne. What does he say? Well, he said, he showed me a couple of slides or must have been on paper at that point, but there was no PowerPoint, that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, wanted to know if I'd invest in his StarCraft boosters. And 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 by the way, I actually think it's a really good idea. It was It was brilliant for its moment in time, but it wouldn't help me get to space. And so that actually was not one of the investments that I made in those early days. And in fact, he's still, it's still a great idea. He still pitches it now and then, uh, uh, but I've never backed it. On the other hand, I had others that I did back. And so, for example, one of the, the most, I backed many, most of which would, it went nowhere. But one of the ones that was a near miss was a company called Spacehab. And what Spacehab did is they said, you know, if you look at the space shuttle, it's got room for you know six astronauts. It's got a little pressurized what's called mid deck for experiments, and then this big empty payload bay in the back where you can put a satellite. But the scientists were interested in doing science back there, and so they lamented the fact that you that there wasn't a, they couldn't just put a pressurized module in the entirety of the back of the space shuttle to give them a bunch more effectively mid deck space to do experiments. And they said not only would that let scientists have a, have a lot more space like a space station. But uh, it also means you could outfit it like a double-decker bus and take like 40 more people if you ever wanted to up into space. And so I thought, that's great. I will invest in this company that's going to basically put a double-decker bus in the back of the shuttle. And that way we can split the cost of a space flight amongst the 40 of us. So not only will we provide the opportunity for citizens to go to space, but I'll be able to afford a chance to go to space with Spacehab. And so Spacehab got started. They actually built that module. NASA flew the module a number of times. And they said, we're not taking any civilians ever in this thing. And it was like, ah, oh. first, that was my first near miss was basically NASA saying, sorry, I don't care that, you know, there's no price at which we're going to take citizens, you know, up into space, even with your new pressurized module. And sadly, but you have to be thinking of giving up at this point. I mean, is there's any point of youth saying because you disappointment, disappointment. Are you saying at any point, is there that moment at night where you look up and you say, man, I just don't know if this is going to happen? Oh, well, that's different from saying give up. So sure, lying in bed going like, man, I just don't know how I'm going to make this happen. That happened all the time. But thinking, even though I don't know how I'm going to make it happen, I'm going to make it happen, never failed. And uh, I was completely unwavering. And, uh, uh, and, and in fact, with that one as our, my first near miss, it's sort of the lesson of this first era. That was the best of the first era. The, my, the other aspects of this first era of investing taught me that the people I was investing with, which were mostly ex-government NASA type employees, they're super smart, they're great scientists, but they're not great entrepreneurs. And they're definitely not gonna be able to convince the government to change their ways from the outside when they couldn't get it to change their ways from the inside, which is what their original frustration was based on. And so I was going like, this is the wrong approach. And so, you know, you go back and you twiddle your thumbs for a couple of years and you figure out, okay, well, how, what's my next strategy play gonna be? And that's when I met the group of us that ultimately did open it up at the Explorers Club, I'll, by the way, uh, mention. Uh, and uh, it was actually at an Explorers Club annual dinner that I met a gentleman by the name of Eric Anderson, who was the CEO of this company just getting started called Space Adventures. And he was partnered with Peter Diamandis that I had already partnered with for another 
space uh, activity that was originally my first investment with Peter was the zero G Corp doing parabolic flights. And then I began to put all these pieces together and wait a minute, this is also the time we were starting the X prize. So it, it turns out there's three things that all came together basically at the same time. And, and all three, I think were required, were required to open this door up. The X prize was envisioned as a, and we eventually made it, a $10 million prize for the first private vehicle to fly into space. Uh, we then said Space Adventures was going to book suborbital flights to prove that the winner of the X Prize would have a market if they bothered to invest tons of money in winning the X Prize. Uh, and then Zero G Corp was to give people a taste of zero gravity as sort of the stepping stone. You know, we'll, we'll sell them a $5,000 zero gravity seat. Yep. And once they really loved that, then some fraction of those people would be willing to buy a $100,000 suborbital space flight seat. And uh, a zero G flight, then a space, then a, then a, a, a suborbital flight. And, uh, and so that was working pretty well. So actually, the, you know, we, what was happening with the, the X prize is no one was winning the prize for a long time because we, never, we hadn't raised the full 10 million for a while. And it was another friend of ours, Anusha Ansari, who eventually, she didn't have at that time 10 million to give us for the prize, but what she, she gave us was two and a half million with which we bought four year long hole in one insurance against somebody winning it. And so we paid the $250,000. And by the way, once the prize was funded, it was eventually won in 2004, in October of 2004 by Burt Rutan of Scaled Composites who won it less than a week prior to the expiration date of that insurance policy. So it almost never happened. And during this period, People, when we'd go around to people saying, hey, we were putting this $10 million prize together for the first private vehicle to fly into space, people would laugh. They would literally go, ha, 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 ha. oh, you're serious. And going, yeah, we're serious. So literally prior to October 2004, when we would tell people about commercial space flight is going to be a thing, they laughed at us. Once October 2004 had passed by, it was inevitable. No one doubted. And I mean, people would be like, oh, of course it's going to happen because private industry can do it. And that is immediately when all this other stuff began to open up of, uh, of SpaceX and uh, Blue Origin and all these other companies really emerged after the X Prize. And so I actually think that this moment is what now has opened up commercial space flight broadly, the whole space race, this commercial space race. But there's actually another piece of it, which is you know, uh, none of those companies have yet taken a private citizen to space. And yet we have flown six private citizens into space. Uh, including myself. And, um, uh, and that came about during the time we were waiting for the prize to be funded. We we're going like, well, this is no fun. We really want to go to space. I really want to go to space. How are we going to get, how are we going to solve this? And we already knew that NASA was a no. And we went and talked to them again and they still said no. And we said, well, the only other game in town is Russia. And Russia, interestingly, is flying non-Russians they're often flying politically aligned countries, astronauts. It, it appeared to be in exchange for the purchase of military hardware. We, we could see that they would make this deal and this other small country would buy a bunch of Russian military arms. And in return, they would fly one of their nationals as their first cosmonaut to reach space. And so we said, you know, that means there's a price. And we actually did, it was actually Eric Anderson who did the calculation of trying to see how much these arms deals were worth. And it actually came out to be about $20 million each time. And so he said, that's just 20 million bucks. 
And I was going like, well, by the way, I had just sold my first company. I've on paper, I've got that kind of money. And so let's, let's see if we can get, get this flight done with Russia. And so Eric went out to talk to them and their first response was, nope, nope, we're not going to do it because to even see how much it would cost, which we, and, and how we would train you and if we could take you, which the answer is probably no, but even that exploration would cost money. And so we said, well, that sounds like a qualified yes. <laughs> so he said, well, how much will it, how much will it cost to do the analysis? And they said 300 grand. So I personally paid the 300 grand. They came back and told us, yes, we can fly you. The answer is $20 million, exactly what we had anticipated. Uh, and this was in the year 2001. And if you remember in 2001, two tragic things happened. First was the internet stock market bubble burst and therefore my net worth burst. And then we also had the September 11th attacks, which destroyed the markets. And so my ability to pay for this seat that I had just finished negotiating the ability to have and paid for all this stuff, it went away. And so we actually had to sell that first seat to a man named Dennis Tito, who became the first private citizen to fly into space. So at that point, again, Richard, you've now tasted, I mean, tasted, it was so close. And what made you be able to at least get into that realm was money. You had a lot of money and now you didn't have money and someone else has already done it. So are you saying to yourself, I'm going to give up? No, at this point I'm going like, well, I'm still making games. I still love making games. Uh, I believe I can still make really good games. Let's get to work. And so I built another company. I sold another company. And as soon as I had paper net worth that was above the ticket price, which had now raised to $30 million, uh, I uh, immediately said, okay, now's the time I'm going. Interestingly, uh, I did actually fly in the year 2008. And you might remember the 2008 was another financial crisis. This was the real estate financial crisis. And so I am literally making you know, multi-million dollar payments to Russia while the market, including my net worth, is going to zero again. And so I actually barely managed to pay for my flight. I actually go, I not only basically went broke in, you know, with the dot-com bubble, but I basically went broke again as I was paying for my space flight. So I returned from space to be basically broke a second time. I could listen to Richard for hours. And guess what? Now you can too, as coming up next, we have part two of Space Tourism Pioneer, and gaming's Lord British and his unbelievable antics. Every great expedition has to come to an end, but that doesn't mean we can't stay in touch. Send us your favorite expedition pictures and tell us about your most memorable journeys, large or small. All right, get something to write with. Here are my coordinates. www.lifestuff.com slash explorers. One more time, www.lifestuff.com slash explorers. That's it for today. Hope to see you out on the trails.